background check has become a regular feature in the hiring process. If you've hired a job recently, at some point they're going to ask you for information, they're going to use that information to follow up and, and they're going to submit an application to the Department of Justice uh, and to the FBI and find out if you have anything in your closet that might deter you from being a good employee for a job. Now, having a criminal background um, doesn't necessarily disqualify you from jobs, but there are some jobs that, like if you've committed a crime, if you have a felony in certain areas, that you probably shouldn't be in certain positions. For example, if you've been convicted of child endangerment, we, we probably don't want you teaching in one of our schools or daycares. If you've committed fraud, uh, probably not going to be an employee that, that an, um, a firm is going to want to hire as an accountant. We are uh, now in continuing our series on um, Jesus' desire to be the king of our lives, to invite us into his kingdom where he is the king, and, and interviewing Jesus in a sense for that process by looking through Matthew and what Matthew says about Jesus and, and about his life. We're just kind of putting that together in the form of a resume. And this morning we come to Jesus' criminal background. And uh, I actually have access to that system because we do background checks for everyone who in our church who serves in our children's ministry uh, because we are committed to keeping our kids safe. And, and so I, I did a check, and, and we do not have anything from the DOJ or the FBI on Jesus' background. So what we do have is uh, records of Jesus' um, trials. And Jesus, actually, we have court records of Jesus. He went through three trials, and we have the records of those trials that I present to you this morning as evidence of Jesus' criminal background. The, the first uh, trial that Jesus went through was before what was known as the Sanhedrin Council. The, the Sanhedrin Council was made up of priests and elders and teachers of the law and led by the high priest. And it was their job. They were the ruling council for the, for the Jewish religious community. And so the first trial that Jesus went through, after they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they took him to the, to the Sanhedrin council. And in this first trial, he was charged with blasphemy. Blasphemy is to, is to, to profess or to believe or declare that you are somehow divine, that you have divine attributes, that you are, in a sense, it's to say you are God. And the high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Here's this trial question. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus responded, you have said so. But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And at this point, the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. He's saying he's guilty. You, we've heard it from his own mouth. He's guilty of blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you have heard it from his own mouth. Blasphemy. He's guilty. And because he's guilty of this charge, the high priest says he is, or he says to the people, so what do we do? And they say he is worthy of death. We need to execute him. So we come to the end of the first trial, and Jesus has been charged with blasphemy. He's been found guilty of that charge. 
and they've sentenced him to death. The, the problem that the Sanhedrin Council has now is they are operating under the auspices with the, with the permission of the Roman government. But they do not have the authority to carry out the sentence against Jesus. They can't kill him. They don't have capital punishment at their disposal. And so now they need to take Jesus to a civil trial to get permission to do what they have decided he is, he, he is deserving of from his religious trial. So the tri second trial, they take him before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is, a Roman, is the Roman governor over Judea. And they take him to Pilate to get permission to execute him. Now, Pilate couldn't really care less about the Jewish ruling council or, or, or their laws. Blasphemy is not in his domain, in his realm of, of concern or responsibility. So what's the charge against Jesus then in the civil trial? The only question that Pilate asked Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, the, in the Roman Empire, the emperor is the ruler, and anybody else who sets, them up, sets themselves up as authority in, this, in the Roman Empire would be then charged with, effectively, insurrection. That Jesus was being charged in the civil trial with the, with the, the, the crime of insurrection, of, of staging a rebellion, of saying that he's a king of a kingdom that is taking, trying to overthrow our, um, the, the Roman Empire, or at least their control over this, over this uh, region of it. So he's being charged now with insur insurrection. Luke, in his gospel, expounds on that and says that they were saying that, that he um, opposed paying taxes to Rome, which is interesting because every time Jesus asks that question, he says, pay to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. He, he actually didn't do that. Um, he was charged with uh, subverting the nation uh, of Rome by uh, claiming to be king. Um, he was caused with stirring up uh, dissension throughout the, um, um, the, the region of Judea. And, and so he's tried before in the civil court before Pilate with insurrection. But after Pilate asks him his questions, he determines that Jesus is not guilty of that charge. And he chalks the charges up against Jesus and all the things that they're saying about him as just their petty religious disputes. He's saying, I don't see any grounds for the charge that you are bringing against him. Nonetheless, Matthew says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on our hands and on our children. Pilate says he's not guilty, but if you want him, I will give you permission to take him effectively but it's not on me. It's not my responsibility. I'm not taking the blame for it. Which leads to then Jesus' third trial. In Jesus' third trial, his conviction came 
in the court of public opinion. And we all know how the court of public opinion can go, right? It swings to and fro in rapid ways. Like today we have the court of public opinion on whether or not Taylor Swift should appear in the Super Bowl. And people, I've discovered, have very strong feelings about this, which makes absolutely no sense to me on either side of the equation, but that's another story. Now you're putting me in the court of public opinion. In the court of public opinion, the religious leaders stir up the crowd into a frenzy. It says in Matthew 27, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Jesus executed. It was the custom of Pilate in his region to give to, to release a Jewish citizen to the crowd over the Passover. I'll give you Barabbas or I'll give you Jesus. Barabbas has been convicted of insurrection. I'm saying choose one. They say we want you to free Barabbas. We want you to execute Jesus. And Jesus is then found guilty in the public of court opinion and sentenced to die by crucifixion. That's his third trial, and now he's on his way to, cross, to the cross. Now, in our judicial system, capital punishment is a very long, drawn-out process. It takes, on average, 10 years from the time someone who is convicted of um, and sentenced to capital punishment to be executed. And actually, half of the people on death row right now have been there for over 18 years. It is a very long process. And people have strong opinions, too, about whether we should be sentencing people to die and executing people or we shouldn't. But I think everyone agrees that we shouldn't be executing innocent people, right? And so we have due process to make sure, to, to take every precaution to, to not execute innocent people for crimes they did not commit, and still there's evidence that that sometimes happens. In first century Rome, the process was not nearly as drawn out. In fact, you could be tried, convicted, and executed on the same day. Even so, you still got your day in court. You still got your opportunity to make your case of innocence. And when Jesus had his day in court, when he stood in Pilate's court and answered the questions or was being addressed by Pilate, he never mounted a defense. On his day in court, he didn't respond. It, it, it reads like this. When he was accused by the chief priest and the elders before Pilate, he gave no answer. And Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. 
when you look at the evidence of the court records, and specifically the record of this trial before Pilate, by all appearances, Jesus is complicit in his trial, conviction, and execution. Like he's part of the process. You go back in the story. Three times before his arrest, he told his disciples, this day is coming. It's going to happen. As if he had somehow planned it, saw it in the future, and was marching towards it. The night that he was arrested, it says he went into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and he prayed. And in his prayer, he cried out to God and asked him three times for God to take this cup from me. What cup? The cup that he was about, to, the, the, the cup of his execution, of his crucifixion on the cross. God, if there's any way for this not to go down this way, let it not go down this way, which stands to reason then God has his hand in the process too, right? He's asking God to not do something if there's another way. At his arrest, Jesus said to those who are arresting him and to those who wanted to defend him, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will not at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? This has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus says there's a script that was written by the prophets centuries before. And that script has to be fulfilled. And that's what I'm doing here. And that's why this is happening. And it must happen. Matthew directly quotes the Old Testament prophets 36 times and says, this is what Jesus did, and this is why he did it. He did this because the prophet said he was going to do this, and he did this because the prophet said he was going to do this, and he did this because Matthew was speaking to a Jewish audience, and what he's saying is, this is the Messiah. Jesus is the man. Jesus is the Son of God. All the things the prophet said are all the things that Jesus did. That Jesus was complicit in the process. That Jesus was a man on a mission. And you see it throughout his story. You go back to the very beginning at his birth. It says when Matthew talks to Joseph and tells him to go ahead and marry Mary. Mary. Oh, didn't see that coming. He said to Joseph, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We see it in his teaching. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see it in his passion. By, by his passion. We see it in his suffering. 
in the journey that he went through to the cross. While they were eating, Jesus met with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He took the bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They named him Jesus. He will save his people from his sins. He would give his life as a ransom for many. His life was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's ultimately that Jesus' trial was not before the Sanhedrin council or before Pilate in a civil trial or before the court of public opinion. That ultimately Jesus' trial was in the jurisdiction of the courts of heaven. And the charge against Jesus was not blasphemy, it was not insurrection, it was the sin of all of humankind. And the verdict was that he was guilty by association with humanity. He was guilty of the sin of all of humankind by association with humanity. That his crime and his punishment were by proxy. By proxy is to be an agent legally authorized to act on behalf of another party. Paul says it this way, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took the sin of humanity and it was placed on Jesus Jesus was charged with our sin, convicted of it, and sentenced to die, and took that punishment, our punishment, on the cross. Jesus' punishment renders the citizens of the kingdom of heaven innocent. And if this is true, if this is true, Jesus' criminal background is the strongest case for his rule in our lives. Because the crime he was punished for was ours. And the punishment that he took for that crime was ours. 
The wages of sin is death. Our sin. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Adam and Eve didn't die on the spot. If they did, there would have been a much shorter story. But they died. And everyone since then. And we die because we sin. But Jesus' death took the the punishment, the finality of our physical death. And now it is no longer a final execution. But through Christ and his forgiveness, the atoning sacrifice of his sins, it is our entry finally into the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've all seen shows, haven't we? Where someone dies for someone, or someone saves someone else's life, and it gets all weird. Like, oh, you saved my life, and now I have to, you know, be your servant, and they start following him around, and after a while, people's like, just, you know, okay, just go live your life. Stop bugging, stop bugging. Or someone saves their life, they give somebody a, a kidney or an organ, and then they feel like that person's indebted to them because they saved them. Like, it gets kind of weird. This is not that story. That Jesus rescued us from our realms that were destined for destruction and rescues us to the kingdom of heaven. Paul describes it this way, that through Christ we receive the Spirit of God. That Spirit does not make us slaves so that we have to live in fear. Rather, the Spirit we receive brought about our adoption as sons and daughters. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, we also, that we also may share in his glory. That Jesus' crime and punishment declares us, through Christ, innocent. Jesus wants to be the king of your life. He died for it so that you might enter into, so that we might enter into his kingdom and have the life of God that we were created for because now we have life with God. We have the spirit of God living in us, and that spirit is the source and the fuel of the life that we were made for and the life that we were longed for. The strongest case for Jesus' rule over your life is that he took your crime and your punishment and gives you, in exchange, his life. Now and for eternity.